0: Welcome to the fourth episode of the Indie by Design podcast, the show about game design and game designers. In each weekly Wednesday episode, we sit down with interesting people to talk about them, their work, and their outlook on games. This week's episode features Mode 7 games, creators of Determinants, the Frozen Synapse series, and Frozen Cortex. The Indie by Design podcast is brought to you by Stace Harmon and John Robertson, writers and creators of independent by design art and stories of indie game creation a hardback book available now from IndieByDesign.net and from Amazon. This episode of the Indie by Design podcast is hosted by me, Stace Harmon. UK-based Mode 7 Games was founded by Paul Kilduff-Taylor and Ian Hardingham and is best known for creating top-down turn-based tactical combat titles, Frozen Synapse and Frozen Synapse 2. They've also applied the turn-based strategic treatment to a futuristic sports title in the form of Frozen Cortex, and before any of that they created Determinants, a sword-fighting multiplayer title in which you fly around crossing blades and wits using one-to-one mouse movements to drive combat. In addition to developing its own titles, Mode 7 is making forays into publishing games. Tokyo 42, developed by creative partnership SMACK, is the first game to be released by Mode 7 acting in a publisher capacity. Here Paul Kildorf-Taylor talks about his creative roles as musician, writer, designer and business developer. The useful lessons of perceived failure and how to stand out from the crowd he begins by explaining how mode 7 transitioned from flying sword fights to turn-based tactics
1: we did determinants and that was very much uh, about us learning to make a game so our lead designer lead programmer ian hardingham He'd been doing work in the talk game engine at university, which was the engine that used to power a, a game called Tribes 2, mm-hmm. which some of your older listeners may have heard of. Um, and the, the company that owned that engine, Garage Games, they licensed it out. So it was one of the first sort of cheap indie engines. So we learned how to use that, what Ian did specifically, um, made this game that didn't do very well, but that kind of ended, ended up being sort of mash of different ideas that didn't gel. Mm-hmm. And we came off the back of that, Um, in a situation where we were doing contract work and we really wanted to make another game. And at that point, the idea behind making another game was to kind of go, okay, we've, we've made a game. That didn't go great. Can we make a good game? What would be involved with trying to take all of the experience we've got and all of our desire to create something and make something that is actually good, which is <laughs> no, no small feat. So we kind of started from an idea that Ian had. Um, he used to play a lot of a game called Laser Squad Nemesis, mm-hmm. which was um, kind of evolved out of the out of the Laser Squad and XCOM games um, by the the gollops Mm -hmm. Um, and that was uh, a game which was kind of a very very exciting tactical game but had these very long setup phases so it would take a huge amount of time if you were playing multiplayer to eventually encounter your opponent Mm -hmm. Um, and that was something that that Ian didn't like and there there were a few other things as well um to do with things like health. He'd always been frustrated with kind of units getting down to to low health and sort of the meaning of that, having a load of these pointless units. So it was taking that idea and then stripping a lot away from it was something that he'd always really wanted to do. And he was kind of looking, you know, just at his own inspiration for something that, what's a game that I really care about? Determinants was something that was almost aimed at you know, almost an external group of people, people who kind of liked fighting games, and and that was never sort of exactly what we wanted to do. Mm. Um, So there you go, that's the convoluted answer. It was a a combination of all of those different inspirations, both in terms of development and in terms of what we wanted to actually create.
0: Mm. Was there something about determinants that you thought might catch people's imaginations that you hoped would kind of be a sort of a a takeoff project Commercially as well as creatively, um, and then and then you thought might lead on to other things, or was it a a uh, an attempt to I don't know capture the market, or what kind of what why was why was Frozen Signups not your first game? I guess is the the underlying question.
1: I think Determinants had its own set of influences. So one of those was Magic Carpet with the the sort of flying over a landscape, mm-hmm. which is something that you know mm-hmm. both Ian and I absolutely loved. Um, and then there was this idea of control the idea of um, the mouse being one-to-one with the sword. And control comes into Frozen Synapse as well. The fact that it's not on a grid, the fact that you can make these very fine-tuned adjustments to everything um, and the player really decides what they're doing. That shared a lot of characteristics with determinants. So determinants was more, I think it was a sort of abstract expression of a lot of these design ideas rather than going, hey, we're going to make a fighting game. Mm. It's almost that thing where, and I've seen this with a lot of people in, in different creative fields, when you start, you don't really think about Genre, particularly, you kind of just do a set of Mm. things that you like, and then it ends up being in a genre. Um, Whereas when you mature a little bit, you can think, okay, I know people are going to perceive this game in this genre. What are the expectations of that audience? Mm. And that maturity sort of feeds in. Now, it's a complete balance between how much you follow your own path and how much you let that affect you. Um, And there's pros and cons of that. But yeah, with determinants, it was really about this thing of, you know, what can we make? what do we want to spend time making and what, what do we think people will like? And it's always juggling those three elements together. And sometimes you, you can't juggle them and you fall over. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, so, so it was really sort of just about taking the resources that we had at the time and making something, and that's kind of all you can do at any point, really.
0: Do you feel then that there are parallels between or there are threads between determinants and frozen synapse, and then the later games as well, because you mentioned the control method and and how that is an important factor in frozen synapse. So from an internal perspective, um, because this is something else I'm always interested in, that some people come to games or even an interview with a certain uh, bias or a certain assumption about things, and they say, oh, well, like I've just done, oh, clearly there's no... Connection between the <laughs> of silence and phrases and but to you internally, is that kind of a well? Actually, no, that's that's nonsensical. Of course, there is.
1: Um, I, it's not that it's nonsensical. It's something that I could, I, I very much would expect. You know, mm. an external person not to not to think about particularly, because a lot of it is, and and I think that's kind of key to the whole thing, really, because a lot of it is how these ideas are perceived. So in Frozen Synapse, you've got recognisable units with guns that that people will know from other games, sort of classes of guns, uh, and there was this motivation as well to make kind of a top-down Counter-Strike. So that, provided people with a way in. And it wasn't something that we necessarily set out to do it in this kind of clever, imposed way. Sort of as we were developing it, we were going, oh, yeah, people know what a rocket launcher is. They know that if you shoot a wall with it, there's going to be an explosion. You know that a shotgunner is, is a short-range unit. So immediately you have a, a language there. And with determinants, we didn't, we really didn't have that. So the extent to which I'd expect someone to be able to perceive design similarities and sort of motivational similarities between the two is not very much because we learned how to present those ideas almost between the two games. I mean, in my mind, we definitely couldn't have made one without the other. That's completely impossible. Um, The things that we learned technically on determinants really applied to FS. And also some of the, the design process. So determinants went through a lot of iteration at the wrong time. We, we got sort of quite far down one track and then went right back to basics and changed the fundamental design. Um, but frozen synapse, we, Ian very consciously decided to make sure that it was prototyped first, that he worked out the main sort of design issues first, um, and then progressed with that. And, and that process never would have come about if it wasn't a reaction to determinants. Similarly, starting with a multiplayer game, starting with a core combat mechanic and, and, and core sort of unit interactions is something that we we pretty much always do. Um, we'll try and get that bit of the game working first, mm. and again, that philosophically came out of our experiences with Determinants, and then moving forward and trying to improve. So the two are very, very linked in my mind. But I'm, mm. I'm just I'm always happy to see you know the the kind of jumps we made in terms of conveying the idea really, mm.
0: and that that then led. Um led you to, to branch out in a sense in the UN from Frozen Synapse being a turn-based tactical game. that As you mentioned there, has that kind of intrinsically appealing, but also uh, well-understood and well-established language that that people do understand. They Gamers understand, even if they don't necessarily, even if they aren't explicitly aware that they understand it. There is a, I can look at this and assess these units, and as you mentioned I know that this sniper guy is going to be able to shoot from one end of the map to the other, so long as you've got a line of sight, and I know the shotgun guy is going to be able to uh, get up close and personal, and that that exists in people's minds, or, or people that have played games, I guess, that, that exists in their minds, um, almost as just a second nature. But you then took that into another area that, similarly, would have, I would, I would think, would have that same level of intrinsic understanding, which is... A, uh, and I don't know how sensitive you are to it being compared to American football these days, because I know <laughs> that it, that side of things didn't necessarily play out as you'd expected it to. But that, again, is something that people look at and they can understand that. Um, yeah. Now, was there perhaps... Is the term-based combat more of a widely appealing idea... Than that people are willing to get into than a football game that perhaps already people think, oh, well, American football's not for me, therefore this isn't for me. Was there kind of a, was that the, were those two two, too connected? Could they not be pried apart? And was that why do you you think maybe the initial reaction was
1: one of um, not (laughs) universal? Uh, appeal I guess is yeah i mean de- definitely so so this is this was an interesting one because I kind of almost felt like it fell between the the poles of determinants and f s in that mm-hmm. as you say, it was comprehensible, but it didn't hit the right notes exactly. And this is something that happens constantly to to game concepts. It's a really interesting thing to, to go through. So Frozen Cortex kind of was our version of Blood Bowl. That's kind of how yes. I saw it in my head. It was, you know, we're taking this tactical thing, we're putting it in a new framework, but there are, as you say, things about that framework which are understandable, which are comprehensible and intuitive. You're trying to get a ball over a line, mm. uh, and you're trying not to get tackled. You know, that, that's kind of obvious. But what happened was... We strayed into territory where people wanted to become very literal about it, and something that I've definitely learned in terms of how you present games is is just how literal the audience is, and that's primarily because of time. So they're bombarded with things constantly, and if you see one screenshot that reminds you of something else, you'll say, oh, that's a... a shooter or mm. that's, a, that's an adventure game or you're using these kind of heuristics that you have to very quickly identify something because that's all you can do under pressure um, so we had people thinking it was an American football game which it isn't it's an entirely different sport um And there's a lot of different elements to it. There's sort of violent tackling. There's this this very, you know, specific turn-based strategy element to it. We've had so many people who have been brave enough to kind of go, oh, I don't normally play sports games, but I like strategy, and I really got into this. But that's the kind of thing that it's very difficult to overcome that with just marketing because you're fighting against this initial perception all the time. Um, so, yeah, that was an attempt to kind of move that on and, and choose a, another aesthetic, but ultimately, yeah, it didn't have the same level of appeal. We never really expected it to have the same level of appeal, but I don't think we also expected to be kind of fighting that most of the way yeah. along. Hmm.
0: And so in, in your minds then, was, was it the uh, – did you hope that people would take the frozen synapses – Turn-based tactical element as the first, first and foremost thing that they saw when they looked at Frozen Cortex, rather than, whereas in Frozen Synapse it was combat, and in Cortex it was this uh, sport football hybrid. Was it was the hope that they would take? Well, I liked Frozen Synapse, and I know that was a turn-based tactical game, and, and this is also turn-based tactical, and almost the subject matter wouldn't matter.
1: Um, I think, I mean, so Ian pitched the game to me as uh, robots playing football in a warehouse. Um, That was his elevator pitch. And I thought that sounded great. You know, I I thought that sounded really, really interesting and, and would enable us to take the things that we like about football and perhaps bring that to an audience who wasn't into sport. And again, that was successful you know, to some extent, but hmm. but not the thing you want to do if you're, if you're going for a kind of mass appeal game. I mean, I guess I, I really wanted, I mentioned Blood Bowl, I really wanted that effect, you know, I like this kind of gameplay and, oh, what's this, here's a sort of intriguing new way of doing it rather than kind hmm. of, you know, massively selling someone on the idea straight away. I don't think you can really do that. And you definitely can't... Um, put people in a position where they see the gameplay first, because it's impossible to convey gameplay with a screenshot, really. I think the closer you can get to doing that, then uh, the more successful you're, you're going to be in some ways. But um, yeah, it was it was trying to get that reaction of like, oh, I'm, I'm intrigued by this rather than, oh, I know what this is and I already hate <laughs> it, so I'm not going to even slightly look. <laughs>
0: Well, that's and, and perhaps we should, you know, we should mention. As far as I'm aware, it's not like we talk about frozen cortex in this way as if it was some terrible uh, disaster that you know mm. nearly brought down the company and all the rest of it. I, I, I think it sounds to me from, from interviews that I've read of you in the past, and um, I think you did a uh, was it a GDC last year? You did a, yes. a yeah. failure workshop. I mean, even that in itself <laughs> is kind of the, the label on that is quite uh, severe. But that's it's it's something it was um it was something that you tried and looked at and I from the sounds of it took a great deal of lessons from, which is mm. always useful mm. in itself of course. Um so was there then when moving from that to deciding what you would do next, um and we'll get onto the sort of the, the publisher side um in a bit, but the when you were deciding internally what you were going to create next how much did that play a part and how much did you you know, I and then, you know, again, the simple question here I guess is why frozen synapse 2? Mm. Um is that in a really basic way, is that well, we know that frozen synapse worked and that people really enjoyed that, so let's go back to that and evolve it and iterate it and make it um even better. Um our, or was it just a a thing of well, frozen <laughs> cortex didn't really work? let's kind of go back to frozen synapse and, and then see where we go from there which and i and i say that and i'm aware that sounds slightly um <laughs> not, i don't know if it's patronizing but it sounds cynical i guess like oh well let's retreat back to this thing that we know that works but what was this kind of the thought process and and how kind of candid a conversation did you have with ian about well frozen cortex didn't work frozen synapse did you do the math kind of thing
1: yeah so again, a combination of things so so with cortex it, it definitely didn't do what we wanted it to do, but it also, as you say, didn't sink the company It certainly did respectable numbers i would say for for that kind of indie game but but we wanted it to do more um, and we've always been very careful about planning ahead and making sure that we have reserves in the case that you know we don't hit our perfect business case for something, and that definitely came into play you know we needed to use those reserves um, after that game so so that's kind of what that is uh, and i'm happy to kind of generally say it, it wasn't uh, a success, <laughs> but but equally you have to be very careful with these things. It, it's not something that kind of we bet the farm on and lost. Um, hmm. So there's that as well. So when it came to coming to to choose the next game, um, Ian was very keen firstly on expanding. Cortex to be you know something that, that that lived up to its potential a bit more. So he worked on the manager mode, which added you know a huge number of teams, uh, different management options, and, and the kind of ability to play a more traditional league. Um, he'd wanted to steer away from that for particular design reasons. He wanted a kind of short playthrough, almost roguelike like um, style single player mode, which we still have. But mm. people really wanted to to put you know the hours into building up a team steadily, and he uh, he eventually kind of figured out a way to do that. So we came from this, this thing where you had um, had the tactical game, and on top of that you had modifiable unit stats, and then on top of that you had a big meta system with all of these things kind of interacting. Um, and that was a thing that, that Ian was really excited about um, as a structure, and he wanted a place where he could work on that structure and develop it a lot more. Mm. And we, w- the, the kind of idea that, that came about was if we already have a combat system. And we already have, um, you know, this entire thing that we know fundamentally works. That's the best sandbox for that kind of creative experimentation. Um, And so FS was kind of the natural choice. Yes, definitely the idea of, you know, we've come off the back of a game that people didn't understand as well. Shall we go back to something we know they understand? Yeah, that was definitely a factor in it because Mm -hmm. that solves a load of problems for me in terms of trying to communicate it. But... Actually, what it was was, can we use the technology? And there's a lot of frozen Cortex's tech in in the FS2 sort of procedurally generated city. um, And can we have a framework to experiment with these ideas, which is a a kind of permissive framework where we don't have to design a whole other game as well to Hmm. go underneath them? And that really enabled us to kind of jump to a very exciting place with FS2 very quickly. Hmm.
0: And that's... I'm aware. Again, as you're as you were talking, then I'm aware that talking in terms of success and failure is a very binary thing. But it's also in terms of those two, what those two terms mean. But those two terms are incredibly subjective. So if if a, an entirely different company, you know, one of the big um, publishers, one of the big AAA developers, whatever it might be, if they, well, the problem I guess is that they don't really talk about failures, and that's perhaps why yeah. uh, people are more interested, and and I'm sort of aware that I'm part of doing that. I don't want to bang anybody over the head with the idea of oh, you've acknowledged that this game was a failure so let's talk about that. But I think one of the reasons it's interesting to dissect that is because we don't see a lot of it. There isn't a lot of people, certainly outside of the indie space, who are willing to say realistically, well this game didn't quite meet our expectations, but Mm. Um, look what we got from it. So, and I, I guess you know the question here, I guess, is the is there? Do you think it would be healthier if it wasn't just smaller teams, smaller independent studios who don't perhaps have to answer to a publisher, who who were willing to step out and do these kind of post mortems and do these kind of frank conversations about what worked and what didn't? Um, would would the whole medium be healthier if if other people kind of were willing to? discuss that and, and own their failures I suppose is, is part of the, the issue because you don't see a lot of that. It tends just to be well that didn't quite work out as we wanted it to, um, which is sometimes a massive understatement. You know, it, Do you think there should be more people just saying, you know, hands up, that didn't quite work, sorry about that, we'll do better next time.
1: I think, I think it's difficult because so much of it is about your your specific goals. I mean obviously you have to make money and Frozen Cordex didn't make as much money as we wanted it to make. Mm. Um, And so by that metric, and that has to be the first metric, you know, if you're running a company, unfortunately, Mm. uh, it does boil down to that, then it's a failure. Um, But sort of secondary to that, there are all of these other things that that come through. You know, also with games... at the moment, we're in a sort of very fortuitous ecosystem where things continue to earn uh, residuals, you know, mm. forever mm. almost. Um, you know, there's always ways to kind of get a game out there once you've made it. So the sort of 20-year life cycle of a game uh, is something that's kind of hard to factor in initially. But would it, you, yeah, your question is, would it be better if everyone was, was frank? I mean, mm. to some extent, yes, you, you do you do learn a lot from... Uh, people talking about things that didn't work and, and luckily there is a, a kind of culture, you know, around that the sort of Gama Sutra post things like the failure workshop, um it, Where you get some of that, bigger companies doing it, I mean, especially if you're a public company, talking about failure is almost impossible. Mm. Uh, You have so many secondary considerations. If you say the wrong thing, then you affect value for a huge number of people. Uh, It's not really something I could ever imagine being viable. Also, with all of this stuff, there's always the, there are two problems. There's the anecdotal problem. So, um, if someone who's had one experience that might not be generalizable. And also there's the self-analysis problem. People are generally quite bad at analyzing why things didn't work. I mean, Mm. I've talked about why I think cortex didn't work. That could all be rubbish, and it could be something, you know, Ian would point to some aspect of the design that he thinks were more significant than, uh, than the concept and I might disagree with that and that just shows you like the, the lens that we approach these things through is different so it, mm-hmm. it's hard to learn because you're not always getting the right information you're not always getting the right quality of information but uh, equally just culturally um, saying that you know coming out and saying that certain things didn't work as well and, and, and finding the right way of talking about them that's what I've mm-hmm. tried to do with Cortex and, and failure workshop was, was part of that I did think about that for a long time as you say you know putting that label on it is tough, personally tough thing to do as well as, you know, difficult uh, generally. But um, uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a complicated one. It's not something that I'd ever expect, you know, everyone to be walking around going, hey, I, I did this terrible thing for <laughs> two years, you know, it's, that's not going to happen. But equally, there's a lot of benefit for people who can find the right way of discussing it, I guess.
0: Mm,
1: mm. Well, on the, um, the other side of that,
0: frozen synapse was... Uh, was a fantastic success and was in in all ways ways shapes, and forms and was something that I think was um a surprise hit for a lot of for a lot of gamers for a lot of people that came to it thinking um well, that looks intriguing and I think like you mentioned earlier, it was this idea of you you hooked people because it looked intriguing, and perhaps people did understand a bit more about what it might be um, than they did with with cortex but they were interested enough to give it a try, and and that then um, took off, again, from an outside perspective. That's how it it appears. It took off, and it it did very well, and then it got ported, I know, to to, uh, Vita as well. And there was a lot more, um, I guess, a lot more buzz uh, around Synapse, and I wonder if there was any if there was any um, surprises in uh, – positive surprises, hopefully, but surprises in the way that it was picked up by so many people and and what you think the, the sort of the, – the key element of that was, be it design or, or marketing or just this easily uh, understandable thing to look at and, and get from gameplay videos and all the rest of it, kind of where was the um, – Was the success, and and, yet were there any real surprises that came from uh, from it being a success?
1: Um, Yeah, so Cortex... Sorry, Synapse was originally designed um, to sustain a very small multiplayer community. So the the simultaneous turn-based idea, the fact that you don't have time limits on matches by default, that was all there to address this problem that a lot of indie multiplayer games have of of community. Um, You you wanted something where if you had two friends that played the game, no matter what time zones they were in, you could always get a game against them sort of over the course of a week. And my sort of absolute... Total fantasy level of sales was a hundred thousand units, wow. um, and I think we did that within about sort of three or four months. <laughs> um, so it, yes, it was c- a complete total surprise. I remember early on in the game's development, just sort of looking at it, and it was it was these sort of triangles with lines coming out of them mm. on a on a kind of uh, with these blocky buildings, and I just thought no one's going to play this. It's like mm. an, an ultra nerd. You know <laughs> game that that only really, really specific people will like, and I remember being worried about it. I remember going to work and 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 just being in my car and thinking, "I really hope that we can get something else going because i don 't want to just rely on this on this yeah. game yeah. to keep to keep the company going so that was my feeling on it initially, and that really changed there were two well so three things that really changed that one was we had um a couple of people working with us in the office, and we played a game of FS at the end of the day. And everyone was kind of reacting a lot to to kills. Absolutely. So someone kind of came round a corner and shot someone with a shotgun. And people would be, you know, making making the kind of sounds they make when they play Counter-Strike. Mm-hmm. And that's, that had never happened to us before, really. And, and I thought, okay, interesting. Then we took the game to um, a show, Nottingham Game City, and it was just in a tent in the middle of Nottingham Market Square, and people were coming in and playing it. Uh, and and we had people sit there for hours, literally hours, and we had to throw them off the machines eventually to let other people have a go. And this was something where there was no marketing. It was just a PC in the middle of a tent. Uh, uh, and uh, if it can succeed in that environment, that was good so that that made me again think okay well it's not just us then other people like this and and people just off the street like it so that's unexpected yeah. and then finally um Kieran Gillen wrote a preview for for RPS which which kind of really almost eulogized the game it was an incredible preview um and uh, and so that was huge for us We'd grown up reading his writing. He was sort of a real games journalist, uh, technically. Uh, I'm sure he would dispute that. Um, and uh, that that really sort of got it into this position where, where I thought it, it could be something potentially big. In terms of why that happened, um, I think a lot of it was really down to, to that core design and, and just this idea of, you know, it's you directly planning against another person, and basically everything that happens is your fault or the other person's fault. Mm. Um, Even if you didn't maybe get a bit of the UI right or you forgot to do something, it's still everything is on you, and it's a very direct form of competition. And that idea is super compelling, and there's still a, a lot of games Particularly, multiplayer games kind of have to obfuscate that to make themselves accessible. You know, they have to put mm-hmm. luck in or they have to soften certain things to keep you playing, and FS really doesn't, and that's really unique. So, it, it had something that really, really hooked people that played into this deep kind of competitive. Desire that they have, um, and finally, in, in amongst all of that stuff, the, the reaction, the coverage, and the design, you can't discount Steam. Uh, the way Steam was in 2011, you got on the front page every person who has mm. c- sees your game. So if you have something appealing, that's an enormous thing. I mean, just uh, unmatched now in terms of in terms of placement opportunities. So that that was definitely a major factor, and I'm happy to I'm happy to say that. You know, anyone who had a game in that era experienced that, and it's now Gone, we have to work in a different climate of distribution and marketing. So, all of those things coming together at that time was why it worked, and that's, that's always the case. There's always a timing element involved with games that kind of unexpectedly take off.
0: Welcome to the Indie by Design Podcast Halftime Show. If you're interested in gaining more insight into game design and game designers, be sure to check out independent by design art and stories of indie game creation this hardback book written by us, Stace Harmon and John Robertson gives a peek behind the scenes of game design through original interview based content alongside pages of compelling artwork concept sketches and design documents the book features the likes of Lucas Pope who created Papers Please Adriel Wallach, Train Jam founder and former satellite programmer and Introversion Software, developers of Prison Architect alongside many more Go to IndieByDesign.net or Amazon to get your copy. On our website, you'll also find written editorial content to enjoy and more episodes of the Indie by Design podcast. You can find us on Twitter where we tweet as Indie by Design and on Facebook.com forward slash Independent by Design. If you like what we're doing and have time to leave us a short review on iTunes or your podcast platform of choice, that will greatly help our visibility. In the second part of our discussion with Mode 7's Paul Kilduff-Taylor, we discuss growing and maintaining a community around games, and the future plans of Mode 7 as both developer and publisher. Paul starts by talking about what he believes it takes to get your game noticed amidst a crowded marketplace.
1: I think it has to start with the game. Um, the quality level of games, both visually and in terms of design, is still continuing to go up. Um, you know, we were both at Resed, uh recently, and, and I'm sure you noticed as well. Just this year, it's an incredibly high level of of everything, uh, in, including sort of very small games, perhaps even doing their first show. I, I, it's almost hard to think of anything there which was not good in some capacity. <laughs> yeah. And that's very different from, from previous areas. I mean, certainly the 10 years ago, the kind of indie games people were making were really very basic sort of experimental projects, you know, more sort of Pong-level kind of yeah. basic, basic games, and that's massively changed now. So in terms of what can you do to stand out, it's got to start with the game. Um, and our experience working with um, Tokyo 42, which is a, a game that we're publishing, um, what's made that work is that you can show someone one screenshot and they will go, what is that? I need to have it. Oh. Um, and you really, the level that you need to be competing on is that. Um, when I see game pictures now that don't have final art, that don't even have a kind of representative concept, um, then I just think, you know, how is anyone going to get into this? If you can show a single screenshot or a, a very short you know, three or four second bit of a, a, a moving yeah. screen... Then I and I'm not drawn in. Then you're not going to get anywhere. So you have to start from that. You have to start conveying the idea visually through that. And then beyond that, the thing that will make it work long term is is depth. It's real, real integrity to the design. And then building on top of that to create something that that's going to hold people's attention for a long time. And is going to be something that people can explore, particularly on PC. PC. Players really want something they can get their teeth into. They want something they can think about when they're not playing it. They want something that allows them to use their creativity in a structured way in inside a kind of environment that they like being in. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you have all of those things, if you start from a a design point of view where you're going, it, it needs to be ambitious, it needs to be something instantly exciting, and it needs to last for a long time, then once you have that, you have to start immediately moving on to both community, um, so getting a group of people around the game who like it, who can give you feedback, who can start giving you that external perspective, um, and also to, I guess, what is broadly termed PR, um, and that means just finding people who have a following, who want to talk about the game, who want to see it early, who want to know about you and know about the development and combining all of these things into your ongoing effort as you develop the game. So I, I, it's, it's all very well saying do marketing and, and get your name out there and build community and so on. It, I've seen people try to do that with a game uh, which which doesn't have those qualities and it's a waste of time. You have to start working on yourself, your own design um, and your creative output first um, and then follow that up with the the structure second. So I know that kind of long-winded answer basically boils down to be good and do generally good things, but unfortunately that's where we are. Um, and if you can't compete on that level, you're going to really struggle to make money in, in the current situation. You can't make money with something that's just sensible, with a project mm-hmm. that is just something that you can do at the time. You know, it, It's never going to work uh, unless you're this tiny, tiny, tiny percentile where that happens to be a new idea that no one's done before. You have mm-hmm. to put the time and effort in first uh, in order to give yourself a chance and i, um,
0: I think that, i mean there's nothing wrong with that right there's nothing wrong with the idea that if if you want to succeed then the the, the best thing the most important thing and and the most effective thing you can do is be good That like that's a a perfectly reasonable um a prerequisite to be successful, and, and really, I guess it shouldn't be any other way. It shouldn't be, oh, well, if so long as you hit the marketing, then that'll be great, irrespective of your game. Because if we were living in that world, and maybe some people get by to a certain extent on the on on a on a hype basis, and people buy into things, and, and then realise actually afterwards, well, that was a bit rubbish. But I think that's a a, a completely reasonable place to be at. But it's yeah, be good. that's <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's, I, I mean, that, that's true. the starting point, and good good can take many forms. You know, if, if you, as you mentioned, the, the kind of tools that we have now, if you manage to hit the right notes, even just in terms of story and character, that can forgive a lot of gameplay issues. Similarly, you know, amazing gameplay uh just on a sort of very very tactical level can still work uh even if it doesn't have the the structure around it but i'm I'm kind of talking in in ideals here and i I shouldn't i don't want to ever put anyone off from from making games i think making games is something that teaches you an enormous amount is, is tremendously rewarding even if you don't get the the financial reward um and the only way you can you can get to that point of, of creating something really interesting is, is to experiment and to have failures and to, you know, and to try. Um, mm. I think a lot of people are very scared by this by this climate of like, oh, you need to do marketing and you need to do all this. And I would just say, don't be, um, just be sensible about how you approach it and then and, and try and, as soon as you're ready to be ambitious, then let yourself be ambitious.
0: Mm. Mm. So, and that touches on something there that, um, I know that you personally are a, a creative person. You know you're in, you part own or co-own rather a a video game making company um, and a video game publishing, seem to be video game publishing company as well when Tokyo 42 comes out. But I know that you also have been making music for a long time and that you write as well. Um, and you've written a, about a number of topics and I've been reading some of your stuff online. And, and so I suppose the... The the simple question from all of that is is why and how have you settled on games being the thing that primarily it seems and, and you may disagree with that perhaps the music for you takes precedence but primarily from an external perspective it seems that games are how you uh, creatively express yourself um, within within mode seven and with Ian as well obviously but. Why and how did you kind of settle on that being the the primary form, if indeed you do feel it is the primary form, of creative expression for you personally?
1: I think... I so I I was kind of lucky enough to to grow up in in an area um, where there were a lot of people doing creative stuff. I I kind of grew up near Oxford, and Oxford has the the, the greatest number of bands per head of population of anywhere right. in the UK. So it's, it's a very Quite a music, it's a very good place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And I grew up there, and I saw a lot of a lot of my friends who are musicians, and, and a lot of other people. And the thing that that everyone always struggled with was was that side of like, how do I get anyone to pay attention to me? Kind of similar to the the thing we just talked about. And there are ways that you can do that if you're a musician. You know, you can spend your whole life touring. You can do releases very rapidly. You can do all of your marketing that way. And I. I'd always loved games. I'd always gravitated back towards games. Whenever I needed sort of work, uh, I would look to games. One of my first yeah. jobs was was working in a, in games retail, um, and combining those two things, I think was was really exciting to me because it was it, it gave people a reason to listen to my music. It forced them to it almost. You know, <laughs> if you have a game and there's music in the game, then you, that's the only music you're going to be listening to for that period of time, mm. um, and that in, uh, idea really interested me. Um, I liked playing live, but I never it was never my thing, and, and I subsequently um, developed some hearing issues, which means that it's pretty difficult for me to play live. So that kind of rules yeah. out that side of me running off to have a musical career. I can't really do that. Um, so that's kind of reinforced that decision, really, to, to stay within the world of soundtracks and um, within that stuff. Um, I like having the framework. I, I find it quite hard to cr- uh, complete creative projects on my own. I have a personal project I've been working on that's been going on for about four years now, and I, I just can't seem to get it done. Whereas Ian is amazing at getting stuff done. He's a, he's a great producer sort of on top of his other skills. He's a very tough uh, taskmaster in terms of deadlines, and, and he's, he's great to work with in, in terms of like, galvanizing your stuff. And working with him was... was the, the way that I got things finished, really. Um, and then uh, recently, uh, you've probably seen from, from my writing, and I've kind of been trying to work out what my relationship is with games, um, and mm. the, the things games can really do and the things they can't do. And I feel very lucky to be part of an amazing community of uh, creative people within games. I think there's some of the most healthy um, community ar- around. That sort of work happens in games. We worked in other industries, you know, TV and so on, and it's just not the same. So uh, there's a lot of things that, that that kind of keep me within games, um, uh, and just the, the reaction of of people when they when they find something that they like and uh, and they're very willing to tell you, you know, that they like it and support you. Um, the games audience can be very very loyal and, and and very good. There's a lot of bad press around game communities, but mm. it's very important to not neglect the upside of that, which is you know, just the phenomenal friendships and relationships I've been able to have on the basis of being part of games, really. So, so yeah, uh, it, mm. it, it's a it's a creatively fulfilling thing for me. But it but it's also to do with the community and to do with how uh, games are structured that, that I continue to work in games. Mm.
0: And and does does soundtracking the games? Does that give you a d- different? Relationship, I mean, I guess it must be by default, but does it give you a different relationship or a different perspective on sound design in games in general? Because I know, you know, the, the, the sort of the reported stories are that things like music and even the writing be it the, the story or the dialogue in games is often something that is bolted on the end or that's a very crude way of it but it is something that happens in the later stages or the latter stages of development that these a writer is brought in a, a composer is brought in you the way that your games are created um does that change because you make music is there any sort of interplay between the design and the composition um could, could you you know could you soundtrack a game kind of cold, just coming to it, seeing what it is and then, and then soundtrack it? Or is there kind of that intrinsic part of it, the two have to go hand in hand? What's the sort of the creative process of, for that side of things?
1: So I I think there is some relationship, but it, it wouldn't preclude me, you know, coming into something that I hadn't worked on and soundtracking. Mm. I think that's something that's always possible. Um, in terms of what we've done so far, uh, I very much... Thought about music from the very first initial concept, and I, I because of my kind of creative um, tendencies, I, I tend to think of things in in musically almost um, as I hear them, and music being part of the of the package. So when Ian's telling me about the concept, I immediately start thinking about the direction I could go in with that. So there, there is a relationship there, but it, it mostly sort of takes place in my brain, rather than mm-hmm. in any kind of practical sense. I mean, with stuff like signups, I did think about um, the player wanting to concentrate on this task and writing music that would be good for them to listen to while they were doing that. And as a consequence mm-hmm. of that, I get a lot of programmers telling me that they program to my music, which is something I, I find really nice. Mm-hmm. So I think I managed to achieve that there tonally. Cortex I wanted to be more upbeat to kind of reflect the the more action side of the game uh, and people did respond well to that as well so there's definitely a subtle influence in terms of the game on the music but we we do things a little bit differently so I, I don't like dynamic music in games I don't like music that responds to the action I find that to be just I've never heard it done in a way that I think supersedes linear music. I think it always necessarily kind of impoverishes that. I mean, there's a few examples, things like Dead Space, um, which is a very functional form of, of uh, dynamic music. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, Jason Graves, the composer, is, is just amazing at that kind of horror, textural horror composition, mm-hmm. so I think it can really work there but ultimately I, I want to listen to a piece of music I want it to have a start, middle and end and I don't want it to start fading, you know, stems in and out I want to listen to it um, and so we, we're very sort of dogmatic about that and I'll, I'll always do that so I guess we give the music a bit more space, a bit more prominence that way um, but if it, if it was something that players didn't like it didn't work with the game, then I, then I wouldn't do it but so far it seems to It seems to work. Um, And Atmosphere, I definitely take cues from the game's atmosphere. Frozen Synapse 1 was a bit darker. Um, Frozen Synapse 2, I wanted to go for something that sounded almost like elements of 90s game soundtracks, so Mm -hmm. kind of Unreal and and Deus Ex and things like that, Uh, but on top of the existing stuff. we, We definitely have this very... Profound kind of nostalgia for for 90s gaming and some of the sounds of that. I wanted to kind of bleed through into the soundtrack almost as a subliminal kind of cue to be like, this is like one of those games. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so there's a there's a, a relationship on on sort of several levels between those two things. Another is that because I have a big creative development role, you know, I'm I'm there in the music and, and sound and text. When it comes to talking about and marketing something. That I've really had a hand in myself, I find mm. that makes it a lot easier um, to to just to go out there and present it because it means that I have that very strong attachment to it, um, mm. and that's mm. something that, that that definitely helps. Um, and that's helping with our with our publishing side as well. You know, the fact that we've been involved with uh, with development on Tokyo 42 has helped me translate that into something I can convey to another person. Mm. well that that
0: is exactly where I was going next with that that the um that works i imagine fantastically well for your own games and when you are involved so involved on a day to day basis and then uh, how does that translate to to then publishing um and and just i guess giving a general guiding hand to somebody else who is is making a game um, I know you mentioned previously that uh it's in some ways, it's easier, or in many ways, it's easier to talk about something amazing that somebody else is doing rather than talk right. about what right. you're doing and say, "Oh, what I'm doing is amazing. Check me out." <laughs> yeah. um, so, I, I mean, that that side of things, I, I can completely understand that it's you know, if you have admiration for something, it's it's easier to um, to kind of sing its praises. But the how does that translate that that idea of well, this is somebody else's work, um, and and we are uh, well, the question, I guess, is oh, what do you see your role? What do you see Mode 7's role and, and your role on Tokyo 42? How do you – is it kind of a straight publishing role? Do you? Is there, there more there? You've suggested there was kind of a, a sort of a development pro- side to it as well. So what's the the kind of um, the, the relationship with the Tokyo 42 guys?
1: What we wanted to do was uh, this thing that, that a lot of publishers have talked about before, but I don't think they've ever realised, which is – that we treat, um, again, that we're publishing as as one of our own. So we just give it all of the effort we would give to one of our own resources. And that means that wherever there's a gap or an issue or a problem, we find a way of solving it, be it with our own team or by bringing people in and so on. So with Tokyo 42, what ended up happening was that uh, SMAC, the the team who made it, they wanted – Our design input, they were big fans of our games and they wanted that design perspective as well as all of the other things we could do, Um, the marketing side, the PR side that I've always done. Uh, as well. So we and funding, uh, we, we fully funded Tokyo 42. Um, so that kind of level of very, very intense, complete involvement was not necessarily what we were expecting, but we didn't kind of set ourselves many hard expectations going in. Um, we really want to adapt to what the dev wants. So we're working with another developer right now, and he is very, very, um, specific and, and sort of set on his design and we're, we're kind of adding little ideas and hints here and there but he's very much yeah. got his own direction and we're completely happy with that because he's he's great Um and so it, it's about building that relationship with them uh and then, and then seeing what works. We can only offer things that are kind of appropriate to our size and resources if someone wants to come in and have a £2 million marketing campaign that's you know perfectly regionally marketed in, in China yeah. and, and so on and we can't do that ourselves but it might be something that we could put together with our kind of with our kind of network, um, if, if the person or the developers wanted to work in that way. So ultimate flexibility is the thing that we really offer as a publisher, and also the fact that our work is out there and it's known. You know, we've talked a lot about our relationship with Smack. They've talked about it publicly. We will allow if someone's pitching us, we let them talk to them and, and they can figure it out. So we're very much kind of open about the process uh, and that differentiates us as well in terms of talking about it yeah it, it's a double a double-edged thing so if you have that development involvement you can talk about development more if you have some detachment you can go this is the greatest thing that has ever been made in the genre and not seem uh, ridiculous um so i like that element of it the superlatives don't come kind of naturally when it's your own project and you're very uh you know you're very set on it and, and that can be a downside sometimes. So to be liberated from that, you know, I can say that I really truly believe Tokyo 42 is kind of one of the most interesting action games in development right now. Like, out of anything I've seen, I, I really honestly believe that. And that makes it easy for me to to go out there and, and push it and, and keep, you know, keep people talking about it and uh, and present it in the right way. So the the, the relationship between development and, and discussing things is quite complicated and it has a lot of these different facets to it.
0: Mm. That um, it sounds then like um, there's kind of a almost like an incubation element to to what you're doing with Smack. Uh, perhaps not from a ground up. Um, you kind of brought these guys in and they've they've worked in house and, and are now working on their own project. I, I pre- was it that they came to you with a a kind of semi-complete idea at the beginning?
1: And they had a multiplayer prototype, which was just one level, um, right. and that was. But it was pretty fully fleshed out. I mean, it had f- close to final art in it, had a lot of the systems in it, um, had a, a control system in it, um, and they really weren't sure what they were looking for. They, they, we just met them at an event, um, and they, they turned up, and they were just kind of happy to meet someone from Mode Seven, and mostly talked about. Yeah. <laughs> their frozen Cortex leaderboard positions and you know. <laughs> so that was that was kind of how that happened. Um and then it was just it was just in discussion with them, you know, chatting with them about what their ambitions were for the game and were they going to go do single player and they had this incredible vision of doing an open world single player, you know, with two people, uh it's quite an amazing thing to do and we wanted to see yeah. if that was possible. So it really kind of evolved organically. Um and we very quickly found that they have a, a very intense style of working where they work you know uh, just incredibly hard and they sort of aced every milestone we gave them they would over you know overmatch um, every mm. single time and that's how they wanted to do it and, and working in that way was was kind of tremendous really um, so with all yeah. of these things we just sort of feel our way along as we go and, and try to do things in a sensible way without too many expectations of uh, of what's going to happen um, and and helping them shape it so we've been involved with everything from that control system to the scope of the game um, to kind of how they schedule stuff to little bits and pieces of feedback you know we we're tweaking bullet hitboxes at one point mm-hmm. were you know it, just just little stuff like that 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 publishers wouldn't necessarily always be involved with but where we can bring a bit of our experience into just kind of make sure there's no friction between the the player and that and that cool idea that we saw at the start um mm. yeah
0: that, and there's something so it, it sounds different to for example one of the other people that we've spoken to for the podcast was um devolver digital, and they have this you know they have this great relationship with independent developers they're very um frank and very open about what they can and can't do for developers so they, they, there's not kind of a they don't try to overreach they don't have any grand plans for world domination, but they they do talk very much about their, their strengths and their weaknesses and that um and and their relationship that they want it to be very much where well, the developer does their thing and we will help where we can. Mm. What you have it sounds like is that you have that ability to then help on the design side of things or the the not even just the design but the the actual uh, coding elements, the actual kind of nuts and bolts of we can make these small changes that will make things more streamlined. Is that something though that um, is that a role that you could see yourselves fulfilling on more and more projects? Because I'm wondering and, and wary of that then taking away time from yeah. your own internally creative projects.
1: I think well, I mean on Tokyo forty two we haven't touched code aside from on the console side. So we work right. with um a guy called Alex Darby who's a very talented freelance programmer and he's been working on the console side but but just um in terms of actual code that's that's all been shown from Smack. We've 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 tweaked design but it's never mm. uh it's never that direct. So you know, I just wanted to kinda of clarify mm. that. Um in terms of, does it take time away from our own projects? I think <sighs> we've always had a, a a style of development which kind of comes in fits and starts um, anyway. So there'll be a push to get to a certain place and there'll be a period of sort of contemplation playing the game, talking to testers, um, and then we'll go back into development. So we've naturally had this ebb and flow. And f- certainly for my role, in terms of mm, the external stuff, I've definitely had periods of downtime before where there isn't mm. something we can talk about on the game this month. So I've filled in and done bits and pieces uh and th- the publishing thing means i'm at max capacity constantly which is different mm-hmm. um and, and can be quite hard uh and also ian has obviously taken some specific time away from fs2 to to work on uh on t42 but for him it hasn't been sort of as much as as me so so far it's kind of balanced out um but Ultimately, what we see, this uh, this is our first experimental foray into something, and we always want to do that in a quite conservative way. You know, We're not a company no. who will go, right, we're going to do a new thing. We're going to hire five people, and we're going to set up a new division, and we're going to give them 300 grand, and off they go. We're never going no. to do that. That's not our style. We want to feel something out ourselves first. We want to get the processes in first, and then we want to hire people who can support those things from the perspective of um, we know how to do it ourselves. I don't Mm -hmm. generally, unless it's something extremely technical, getting someone to do something that I don't understand is, is, is not a management thing that I'm completely uh, happy with, generally. So mm. that's kind of the way we do things. Uh, at the moment, yeah, there's a lot of demands on our time, but we're we're really trying to make time for everything. You know, Tokyo will come out fairly soon. Then we've got a new publishing title to work on that's earlier in development, as well as FS2. And that's a manageable load, but kind of much more than that uh, during that time would be hard. Yeah, so mm. it, it, structurally it's something that we that we battle with, but I think we'd always rather push our existing resources as far as we can first um, and then take a big long-term risk in terms of bringing other people on that's how we tend to do things Mm. that makes that makes perfect
0: sense i guess there's the you need to make sure something works before you like you say before you spend the money to set up a whole new section to to do that thing and then perhaps not have anything or risk not having anything to actually work on so it's um I think it's probably just a couple of final things, really. One of them is the, uh, the, the community side of things, uh, which you've, you've touched upon already. Is that something that you see... Um, is that community quite fluid from one title to the next? So is there kind of a Mode 7 community, or do you see the community being more on a, an actual individual title? Basis. Are there, I guess there will inevitably be some crossover between titles, but um, is, is, there, is it a, a big swing one way or the other for
1: you guys? I'd say it's it, it's kind of tiered in some way. So there, there's a small group of our community, maybe sort of 15, 20 people who we know, um, you know, who will kind of chat to us on a regular basis, who will play very early versions of things, who will talk to Ian about design directly, who kind of have that open line to us. Um, Then you have a group of people who are very committed fans of the game, but will kind of wait for news updates, might comment on things regularly and, and sort of be on Steam communities and stuff. Um, who, who kind of drop in and out and then after that it's very game specific we've found so th- there are a lot of people who played and enjoyed Frozen Synapse but didn't play it for that long so they're not kind of part of the active community uh, and they will pop up you know uh, from time to time if we manage to get news to reach out to them you know we have quite a large mailing list and uh, I would say most of the people in that category learn about what we're doing from the mailing list so because we don't have games that kind of have this massive retained user base that are there all the time I wouldn't say that we have a particularly active, kind of persistent community who all talk to each other. One of the things we've been trying to do is, is improve that. Um, we've been running tournaments recently in FS1 uh, to, to try and galvanise a little bit of that a bit more. Um, mm-hmm. But our dream really is to have a game that, that, that is more of an ongoing thing, and we're kind of hoping that for FS2 there's a lot of expansion in terms of the multiplayer. Um, the single player is going to be something that we hope people will want to play for a long time and potentially could be interested in in updates for by sort of free and paid updates so the idea really is to, to try and create that structure within a game that really facilitates that ongoing community thing um, and means that we have a, a better sort of more consistent relationship with our players if we have a structure that we can keep directly working on and it makes financial sense to do that then I think that relationship can kind of go both ways you know people will start talking to us about content that we that they want and, and we can start rolling that in so that's that's my dream for FS2 really is to, to take this sort of a, a more Thing that we have now, and, and really direct it somewhere.
0: For more on games and game creators, visit indiebydesign.net. Follow Indie by Design on Twitter, or drop by facebook.com/forward/slash/Independent by Design. Indie by Design podcast episodes are released on Wednesdays. Our next episode features Free Jam Games, creators of multiplayer robot battler Robocraft. The music in this episode is owned and kindly provided by Ben Prunty.